Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. It's time for Come and Talk It with your host, Michael Cargill, brought to you by Texas Law Shield. Over the last decade, Michael has championed and supported the rights of law-abiding Texans to own and use firearms. He is the owner of Central Texas Gunworks, a veteran of the United States Army, and has achieved national exposure in such prestigious media outlets such as Forbes Magazine, Fox Business News, CNN Money, AOL, BBC World News, Huffington Post, and the New York Times. Cargill vigorously defends lawful gun ownership in this country without regard to party politics. And now, here's Michael Cargill. Good afternoon, Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world. Let's praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Today on the show, we will have a Harvard Law student and gun rights advocate, James DeCruz, who years ago filed a lawsuit against the state of Texas and the Department of Justice so he could purchase a handgun at 18 and get a handgun license to carry it. As a result of trying to bring about change the correct way, he was criticized by the Huffington Post and accused of sounding like a mass shooter and had pictures and quotes with little to no context whatsoever posted in the article. Now, Josh Horowitz, who wrote the article, also just happens to be the executive director for the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, despite the constant assurance that actions of gun control organizations for benefit of the youth of this country, he writes an article targeting an 18-year-old who is standing up for what he believes in and getting involved in the legal system. Now, let me let me kind of paint this so you understand what we're talking about, okay? So this young man was 18 years old and he's trying to get his yeah. Okay. And he's trying to get his um be able to purchase a handgun legally at a gun store. And he wants to be able to get a concealed handgun license. And this is back in like 2011. Get his handgun license so he can carry that gun through the state of Texas. Now, and let's and, and let's think about this. Okay, right now, if you're 18 years old, you're 18, 19, or 20 years old, uh, you can't buy a handgun in a gun store. Okay, you have to be 21 to purchase that handgun or ammunition for that handgun. So, but think about this now. But if you're 18, 19, or 20, you can actually join the military and die for your country. What do you guys think about that? You can be 18 and die for your country, but you can't be 18 and actually buy a gun in a gun store. That's because you've got so many people here uh, that are just so against guns. They don't want anybody to defend themselves, even anybody over 18. 
Yeah, it's just it's just this is uh, pretty wild to me. And you were, we were talking about this earlier uh, this week, Janai. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just it's just crazy. I mean, eighteen. I mean, that's just I just don't understand. I don't understand it either. You can go fight for your country, and you cannot pay taxes. Hey, you can you can fight for your country. You can die overseas uh, for your fighting for your country, but you can't you know purchase a handgun, and you can't even drink either until you're twenty one. No, I know. I used to live in it growing up. My parents owned a restaurant in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And at that time, the drinking age was 19, and then they changed it to 21. And it was a military town, Camp Lejeune. Mm. And so many Marines would come in complaining. And I, I get it. It doesn't make sense. You can, you're issued a gun, and yet you can't go you can't get a license and then you go fight for your country and you can't have a drink. Right. But you're considered an adult. Wow. Uh, I, I, yeah, it's definitely something that's definitely wrong with that. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think it's just, it's the same kind of crap that we see from the left all the time. Um, I mean, you're having, you're having this guy who is, I mean, he's not just some reporter from the Huffington Post. Like, I mean, he is his executive director for the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. He is, he is the anti-gun community. And he's, yeah, exactly. And he's coming out you know, basically attacking this kid. I mean, attacking is kind of a too much of a word, but I mean, he's he's specifically targeting this kid and saying here, basically just handing it over to the rest of the people and be like, here, go, you know, have fun with this. Like, here's all these out of context quotes. Here's pictures of him. Here's his name. Like, it's ridiculous. It's the same. And the worst part about it, in my opinion, is like, I mean, there's so much crap that we see now coming from the left with especially with the inauguration of Trump. But this was back like six years ago, six, seven years ago, when it was still, apparently now it's not anymore, but when it was still considered inappropriate to do this kind of crap. And we're talking about, you know, 18, you're, you're trying to do the right thing. You're, okay, you say, okay, well, something's not right with the law. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get me an attorney, get an attorney, and I'm going to file a lawsuit and try to get it changed. I'm going to fight it. So you would think, you know, okay, well, let's see what happens. Instead of seeing what happens, the outcome of the case, he actually writes an article and calls this kid a, a, a poster child for a school shooter. Right. I mean, who does that? It's ridiculous. That is, and that that affects you. That that affects your um, your drive. That yeah. affects your esteem. Eighteen years old, you're saying, hey, you know, you're, and you have all these articles now. You know, there's like multiple articles from you know from other different outlets uh, saying the same thing now and, right. and that affects that the way he's you know what if he wants to get a job right. so when they google search this this kid you know they're going to see that you yeah, know and, i mean it's impacting his life like as much as again like these organizations want to claim that they're for the youth of this country and they give a crap about the kids in this country what are you doing to this kid i mean like you've done more to turn him into someone who would be impacting the culture and the community in a negative way by just writing this freaking article about him that's calling him out in front of a whole bunch of people. And it's, I mean, I don't even agree with a lot of the stuff that he says, but it's, he's a kid. I mean, he's, well, he's 18 years old. At the time. At the time, yes. Now, and, and, and now he's proved him wrong about all that. Yeah, yeah and, and, and Josh Horowitz, you know, just so everyone knows, we did reach out to the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. I did speak with him twice today to try to get Josh Horowitz on the phone uh, to and to get their communication director to actually speak with us on air. And they, you know, refuse to talk about this topic. You know, and they refuse to talk about this topic probably because now let's speed forward to 2017. Uh, Mr. James DeCruz is now a Harvard Law School student and he's getting ready to graduate in May. So now he just proved them totally wrong. 
He defied the odds and said, you know what? Even though you guys are going to paint me as this monster when I'm not, I'm trying to do the right thing. Guess what? He goes to Harvard Law School. He got into the school that Mr. Josh Horowitz, the person that wrote this article, couldn't get into. (laughs) (laughs) He couldn't even get into the school. But instead, so James gets into Harvard Law School and now he's going to graduate this May. So let me welcome to come and talk it, uh, James DeCruz. James, welcome to come and talk it, sir. Hi, thanks for having me. Outstanding. I, t- I tell you, you know, that's a, that's a heck of a story. And I've, and I've followed you ever since, you know, this happened back when you were 18 years old. How are you now? I'm great. You know, I'm just uh, getting ready to graduate. I'm trying to get back to Texas. And how old are uh, you? I am now 24. 24. Okay. And, 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 you know, we actually became friends on Facebook when you were 18, when this actually happened. Um, you know, back when you were in Lubbock, Texas, and I believe That's you're right. attending, what, Texas Tech University? Yes, I was. All right. And, and, you know, and when this all started. Now, can you tell our listeners, you know, what actually, what, what made you want to file this lawsuit in the first place when you were 18? I mean, so I was involved in heavily in uh, the Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps uh, with my high school. Uh, I was on the marksmanship team. I had just competed for the national in the national competition uh, up in the, up in Ohio at the CMP range. Uh, you know, I had always been passionate about firearms and uh, marksmanship, and somebody had brought it up to me that, uh, you know, 18-year-olds should be able to have the same right as 21-year-olds uh, in being able to protect themselves, and that this was an arbitrary uh, age requirement that has no basis in anything really and uh so uh, after shortly after that the national rifle association reached out to me and asked if i would be interested and i uh said yeah of course and uh the rest of the say is history i was contacted by the lawyers and uh i went on with my life until the huffington post article and other articles broke when in 2010 when i was in uh, texas tech Now, I'm trying to remember back. Was that before or after the state of Texas decided that when, if you're 18, 19, and 20, you're in the military, you're, eight, you're in the military in those ages, you actually can get a handgun license and carry a gun? Was that before or after that? So our case was before that. That's what I thought. And be, as a result of your case, then we changed the law in the state of Texas and said, okay, now if you're in the military, you're a Texas State Guard, National Guard, Reserves, active duty veteran, you're associated with the military, you can now get a handgun license at 18, 19, or 20 and carry a gun in the state of Texas. And so we actually have, yeah. we, we, we need to thank you for that. Well, I mean, I think that's just one step. And, uh, you know, military people associated with the military are only one portion of the population. And there's still, you know, millions of uh, 18-year-olds who are not associated with the military, but still have the right to defend themselves. Yeah, and, and, and it's funny because, you know, I did reach out to Mr. Horowitz, the one that wrote that article uh, in the Huffington Post about you. And Mr. Horowitz, you know, and his communications director refused to come into the show today. I actually got a chance to talk with him twice today on the phone. Uh, on a Sunday, and they refused to come onto the show because he didn't feel that he was educated enough to defend, you know, that circumstance, or he wasn't a part of the organization at the time, and Mr. Horowitz wasn't returning phone calls, so the communication director decided uh, to decline to come on the radio show to defend that article, that hateful article that they wrote back in 2011. That's a, that's a shame. I would love to talk to Mr. Horowitz about, you know, that article and other, uh, other articles that he may... Uh 
decide to write about me. Yeah, it just uh, proves the, that Mr. Horowitz is a little coward, and <laughs> and he's just uh, and he's really upset now because you now you're you're going to graduate from Harvard Law School. <laughs> and I'm very proud of yeah. you. I'm proud of you because you became an NRA instructor. You know, I, you know, I've been following you. You became an NRA instructor. I'm very proud of that. And now you're you're going to you know graduate, become an attorney. And I, I I'm assuming you're going to help us in fighting the good fight for uh, more gun rights. That's the dream. If I could find a, a law firm that does pro gun stuff uh, on a large scale, I would join it in a heartbeat. Okay, I'm definitely going to have to introduce you to uh, my friends at Texas Law Shield, Texas and U.S. Law Shield, because I'm sure they can use another bright attorney uh, to join their ranks. So we definitely have to reach out to Texas and U.S. Law Shield, who is my law firm, uh, who's actually the ones that I turn to when it comes to any gun-related, you know, incidents whatsoever, gun topics whatsoever. So we'll definitely reach out to them and see if they can, if they have a position available for you. Because I bet you they can definitely use a Harvard, you know, uh-huh. Harvard grad uh, in, in that firm. Great. All right. So now let's talk about your, um, the, your paper just a little bit. Uh, because um, I, I read, I started reading, I didn't get through the entire thing. Um, as a result of what happened to you, you actually you actually wrote something, and I believe this was for school, correct? Uh, yes, it started off as a we have to do a winter course uh, here uh, in January, and so it started off as that. I was under the supervision of Professor Mark Tushnet, uh, who's written a few books and articles on firearms, mostly leaning to the left, and uh, so I I posed this question to him about you know, the arbitrariness of short-barreled rifles and short-barreled shotguns, and we went from there. And it was, you know, it turned into a bigger project than I had thought, and then I was offered to have it published by the journal, Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. Oh, wow. And so, okay, so when we come back, we're going to get into that and getting to actually what you wrote and the details of that and, and how that, you know, how that all, how it's all working out. But when we come back, first, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about how uh, the article affected you? Were you able to get a job? How did you get to Harvard Law School in the first place? We're going to get into all those details and talk about how this, you know, how the anti-gun community, how they really work when it comes to people that are actually standing up for people that are defending their Second Amendment rights and all their constitutional rights. This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talkin'. This is Doug DuBois, Jr., Executive Director of the Texas State Rifle Association. You're listening to Michael Cargill and Come and Talk It Radio. Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now, here's Michael Cargill. All right, so we're back, and we're talking with the Harvard Law uh, student, Jada Cruz. I'm going to call you Jada Cruz. Is that okay? Of course. All right, awesome. So we're talking with uh, Jada Cruz, and we're talking about, um, well, you know, a a lot happened when he was 18 years old. This guy is a champion. Uh, He actually did the good fight of trying to get some of the laws changed in the state of Texas, uh, trying to fix it so that, you know, if you're 18 years old, um, you know, you're old enough to die for your country, you should be old enough to purchase a handgun from a gun store. And thanks to his action, um, following that lawsuit with the NRA against the state of Texas, and also following that lawsuit um, against the Department of Justice, 
And that, that was with the DOJ, right, Jay? It was with the ATF. ATF, okay. So find that lawsuit against the ATF. Uh, he was, we actually were able to change the law here in the state of Texas and fix it so that when you're 18, 19, or 20 years old, you can actually get a handgun license and be in the military. Texas State Guard, National Guard, Reserves, Veteran, associated with the military, and be able to get that handgun and, and get be able to carry the handgun. You still can't purchase it from a gun store, but you can at least you know, get the handgun license and carry the handgun. So make sure I say that right. All right, so we're talking with Jada Cruz, who's a, a Harvard Law student. And so, Jay, let me ask you this. So how did this Huffington Post article affect you and and trying to get a job and your your job search after uh, Texas Tech University? Well, I mean, I don't I mean, I try not to, you know, attribute any failures I have to, you know, Josh Horwitz's article. Frankly, I don't really care for what he said or I know we I know we really don't want to give him that much credit. Yeah. Uh, however, I did, you know, I, I did experience, you know, a lot of uh, strange and, you know, negative uh, feedback from that. Uh, so, I mean, many of my friends who I had grown up w- with had gone to elementary school, junior high school and high school with uh, just stopped talking to me uh, pretty much immediately after that. Uh, my neighbor had purchased a house and I was I was renting a room from him and uh, I got kicked out of that. Um, because his police buddies at Texas Tech University told him that it would hurt his future police career uh, being associated with me. Uh, and then uh, after I, tra- I transferred to Florida International University in Miami, and uh, I was searched by the police there uh, twice. Once uh, it was an interrogation style. They brought me into the, the lounge on the floor that I lived on, and there was five six of them, uh, somebody exits somebody on the, at the table with me and they uh, interrogated me and asked me if I had any firearms in my room and if they could search my room. Uh, I, of course, told them to go get a warrant because I knew my rights. And uh, a few weeks later, they searched my car. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's come up in every job interview I've had, or almost every job interview I've had. I recently had one that I didn't come up in. Uh, and those... Those interviews can range from everything like from hiding the fact that they, you know, Googled me uh, and kind of beating around the bush to straight up asking me if uh, to tell them that I'm not a crazy person. And, you know, these these quotes and, you know, it was it was all uh, it was stupidity, me putting those things on Facebook. Uh, so many of them were quotes from books and movies and friends and stuff. But, you know, it was. It gave it gave Josh Horwitz the the ability to paint me as a crazy person, and and, uh, and it shows that you know, I, and it shows that people when you're when you're younger, you you don't realize this, you know, that the things that you post on Facebook, on Twitter, you know, social network, sometimes that stuff can you know come back to hunt you a little bit, and you don't realize that, you don't realize the effects of that. And, and James, it, it's like sorry, no, uh, you're fine. I mean, that's what uh, that's what really pisses me off about this article is because it's like, I mean, first off. You have people going around. People, everyone's made a mistake in their life. Everyone's made a bunch of mistakes in their life, little ones and whatever else. But these mistakes that you, that you supposedly that you posted, made, that's what I'm saying. It's like, these are so tiny. These are like quotes that he pulled straight out of context, like from with 
with nothing around it and just pulled the words out. And a lot of them, I'm even reading it here because they're listed on the article. A lot of them are completely innocuous and they're not even, they're not in reference to, oh, I'm going to do this or this or anything like that. It's ridiculous for him to take these words and attribute a certain motive to you. It's insane. And I mean, especially to do it to somebody who's like, I mean, yeah, we've, as we've established, you're 18, you're an adult, but it's like, go back through his history and what would we find there? And you could take everything out of that, like from what he said out of context. It's just ridiculous. And see, and now, so I'm going to throw this in there. Did it kill you? No, it didn't kill you, no. but it, it's going to make you stronger. It's going to make you the person that you are today. It, 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 it made you into that person that said, you know what? I'm not going to stop here. I'm going to continue on. I'm going to become an NRA instructor. I'm going to continue on. I'm going to apply to Harvard Law School. I'm going to continue on. And now I'm going to graduate from Harvard Law School. I'm going to become one of the best attorneys in this country. So we like to thank, you know, I personally want to thank the guy, you know, because you are be- you're going to become his number one ball on his butt. And I, I think that's awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So now, so tell us, all right, so let's change gears and let's talk about half cocked. And what is that? So that's my uh, paper that's being published in the journal of law and public policy at Harvard law school. And uh, it is, ana- it is analyzing the uh, NFA, the national firearms act of 1934 uh, which I'll refer to, of course, as the NFA, uh, and uh, as well as ATF regulations regarding the NFA. Right, so, and, and, uh, basically, so, and so let's let's go let's go to the introduction. You know, what is okay. your introduction? What is that all about? So, essentially, what I wanted to do in the introduction was start off with a, situ- a simple hypothetical, and to kind of draw attention to how serious th- these regulations can be. And so we start off with, you know, a, a random guy, John Doe, uh, who goes to his local gun store. He wants to buy an AR-15 because, of course, that's the most popular uh, firearm. A version of it is used by the military, uh, so on and so forth. Once he gets there, he says, you know, the AR-15 pistol is smaller. It's more compact. It's you know, cooler for whatever reason, and he wants to purchase that one. He gets his background check, he pays his money, and uh, he walks out the door with it for these purposes in his trunk. Uh, And when he gets home with it, he, you know, like everybody else, when they get a new toy or a new firearm, they want to put attachments on it. They want to see what they can do with it to make it, you know, uh, work with for them. And so here uh, he looks online, he gets a forward grip, vertical forward grip, and uh, if he puts that on his pistol, then he faces 10 years imprisonment, a $10,000 fine, and he forfeits his firearm as well as the right to any other firearm. Okay, and that, that's how the introduction goes. And then you go into the history of the National Firearms Act of 1934, and a lot of people don't know what actually the uh, NFA, the NFA Act of 1934 was. So I, w- I want to have you explain that to us. Yeah. So the the act, of course, came at the end of Prohibition, uh, and instead of Congress imputing the Prohibition violence of you know Al Capone, John Dillinger, on Prohibition, they partially blamed firearms, and they sought to restrict machine guns, suppressors, which they call silencers, uh, short-barreled rifles, short-barreled shotguns, and what they call any other weapon. Uh, They originally also had pistols and revolvers on this list as well, and they were taken off at the last minute 
So this levies a tax of $200, which today would be the equivalent of $3,582.19. Woo! And that, that amount hasn't changed since 1934. Yes. And that's what people have to understand, that that amount has not changed since 1934. Okay. And that's just a few hundred dollars less than buying a car at that time. Right. And even today, they're making a lot of money off it. They are. Yeah. Of course. All right. Okay. And then go ahead. Continue. So... Uh, you know, the, the NFA, I won't bore you with what it did to the corporate side, but it, it originally set, started with uh, if your short-barreled rifle or short-barreled shotgun is any firearm less than 18 inches barrel length uh, or a 26-inch overall length. <clears throat> so if it's less than that, it is you have to pay the $200 tax stamp, you have to register it, fingerprints, all that fun stuff. Uh, and then... It also define, you know, it has this any other weapon category, which is, uh, you know, I'll read it for you. It's it's confusing and convoluted. Uh, so it's any weapon or device capable of being concealed on the person from which a shot can be discharged through the energy of an explosive, a pistol or revolver having a barrel with a smooth bore designed or redesigned to fire a fixed shotgun shell, weapons with a combination shotgun and rifle barrels 12 inches or more, less than 18 inches in length from which only a single discharge can be made from either barrel without manual reloading and shall include any such weapon which may be readily restored to fire. Such terms shall not include a pistol or revolver having a rifled bore or rifled bores or weapons designed, made, or intended to be fired from the shoulder and not capable of firing fixed ammunition. Okay, so and, then, and, really and then let's back up just a little bit because uh, there were some changes made after 1936. Um, well, 86. I'm, in 1934 and 36, yeah, so some things happened. Yeah, so in 1936, uh, there was an exemption for 22 caliber rifles, uh, and they could be, their barrels could be brought down to 16 inches. And that was just to help manufacturers um, because 22 caliber rifles were not used by the criminal element. Uh, and then in and then in 1968, as a result of the assassinations of um, Robert Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King, came something else. Yeah. So at that point, uh, we the Congress enacted the Gun Control Act, which did a whole lot of other things, uh, but it also lowered the acceptable barrel length for a rifle to 16 inches. It did not do that for a shotgun. And then it defined what a handgun was, which is how we were able to get AR-15 pistols uh, as handguns. Uh, okay. Yeah. And then, so then in 1972, something else changed. Um, so, yeah, in 1972, uh, the alcohol and tobacco tax division of the Department of Treasury transferred to the ATF and it was attached to the Department of Justice. And that is the entity that now, re that now regulates uh, the National Firearms Act and Gun Control Act, Title II. Okay, and then in 2002, you know, came uh, the, Homeland yeah, the Homeland Security. Security Act, yeah. And which, um, I guess everything falls under that now, sort of. Exactly. Which is kind of weird. Because you have your Homeland Security, you have Department of Justice, you have your, uh, you know, it's just, it's really weird how all that stuff works. Department of Treasury, you know, so, oh, okay. And then now the constitutional challenges of the NFA. Let's talk about those. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously the big bill that every, the big uh, court case that everybody knows about is United States v. Miller. It's one of the first 
cases you learn about in law school. And, and tell uh, us, what, what, is, what is United States versus Miller? Yeah, so it upheld the National Firearms Act of 1934 as constitutional. And what they, the court said was that uh, Jack Miller and Frank Layton, who transported a short-barreled shotgun uh, across state lines and were arrested, uh, that because the short-barreled shotgun has no purpose in a militia, that it is not protected by the Second Amendment and therefore can be regulated by the, by the National Firearms Act and by Congress. <clears throat> and so, I mean, what most people don't know is that Miller was let go uh, and he never faced any actual criminal penalties. Uh, his lawyer uh, was only doing it pro bono, was doing the case pro bono, uh, so free of charge. And uh, he was also embroiled in political controversy and decided not to go forward with the case because he couldn't get money for it. And so the case proceeded to the Supreme Court with no, no one on Miller's side defending short-barreled rifles. Oh, wow. So it was decided in favor of the government that short-barreled rifles are not protected. Wow. And, and, and that's important to know because this guy did not have legal representation and his case went to the Supreme Court. So, of course, you know, there's no one to argue that side. So, of course, he lost. That's, that's of course. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. All right. So. Um, all right, man. All right. So we're talking with uh, Jada Cruz, who's a who's a, a law student at Harvard University. And we're talking about his paper, Half Cock, the regulatory framework of short barrel firearms. Our call-in number is 512-643-LIVE. That's 512-643-5483. Uh, come and talk it. All right, so, so Jay. All right, yeah. so in January, on January 30th, 1939, the government appealed the Miller directly to the Supreme Court. Um, Correct. And what happened with that? Yeah, so this is uh, where... And this is what, where know. it went to the Supreme Court, which, what you were saying. Yeah, he went to, it went to the Supreme Court. No one from... Miller's side showed up. So Miller was gone. His lawyer was gone. Uh, and so it was just the Solicitor General uh, who had filed a brief to the Supreme Court saying that short-barreled rifles should not be uh, protected by the Second Amendment. And that is the only thing that the Supreme Court looked at when they decided that case. And so the Supreme uh, Court, they didn't really, I mean, they didn't take that in consideration that this guy really didn't have an attorney uh, fighting his side and... and, and try to work with him a little bit? No, I mean, they, they still, for whatever reason at the time, thought that there was a political, that there was an issue that had standing before the Supreme Court, and uh, they just decided that because nobody presented evidence uh, that short-barreled rifles or short-barreled shotguns had a militia use, which they did at the time, uh, and since, but no, since nobody provided it, it wasn't in their, what they call a judicial notice, and they upheld the act as constitutional. Okay. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about Heller. Heller won. And how, you know, what was the result of that? And how did that all come about? We're talking with Jada Cruz. We're talking about um, half-cocked. Uh, we're talking about Harvard. We're talking about gun rights. We're talking about the history of gun rights in America. This is Michael Cargill. And you are listening to Come and Talk It.
Peace. This is Maj Toure. You're listening to Come and Talk at Radio with Michael Cargill. Bonafide hustler, making my name. Bonafide Welcome back to Come and Talk It with Michael Cargill. We're talking all things firearms. Now, here's Michael Cargill. Now it's time for GGN, Global Gun News. Global Gun News, sponsored by Central Texas Gunworks, the largest online gun store in Texas. In the news, Illinois Senator files against Foyd. Senator Neil Anderson filed a pair of bills in the House and Senate of Illinois earlier this month that would repeal the Firearms Owner Identification Act. Illinois is one of just a couple of states, including New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Ohio, that requires a citizen to obtain some type of firearm identification card before purchasing a firearm. Specifically in Illinois... If you choose to buy a firearm or ammunition, you must be in possession of a FOID or firearms owner identification card. So if a citizen in Illinois wanted to purchase a firearm, they would, of course, have to pass a federal NICS background check, just like in other states, as well as presenting their FOID card. Now, Senator Anderson and some gun rights advocates argue that the Ford card is an unnecessary, redundant boundary for Illinoisans looking to purchase a firearm. When I, in Illinois, go uh, buy a firearm, I have to go through the same federal background check in addition to having the Ford card. The cards act like a database of firearms owners, and last year it was reported that state police revoked more than 11,000 cards but more than half of the card holders were not forced to give up their firearms. Legally speaking, the person with a revoked card is required to inform the police of exactly how many firearms they have in their possession, then forfeit them over to someone with an active FOID card. The process has been under scrutiny in the past, specifically back in 2012, when State Rep. Mortland called for an audit of the process. Now, the issue included court clerks not submitting mental health court orders to the state police. And in the case of three counties in Illinois, 46 percent of the reports had missing necessary information, including age, gender or race. Also, they had complaints of lengthy delays in the process or a low acceptance percentage and poor customer service with a call log of 2010 showing a 85% rate of abandoned calls. Over in Massachusetts, AG works toward gun safety. The largely anti-gun Massachusetts Attorney General Healy teamed up with Massachusetts Medical Society last week to inform patients and healthcare providers about gun safety. The collaboration between the Attorney General and MassMed came to fruition in the form of two information pamphlets, one outlining the recommendations for health care providers to discuss firearms with some of their patients. The pamphlets specifically state that most gun owners are knowledgeable about gun laws and are committed to gun safety. Much of the data in the pamphlets details laws regarding relevant law, but none of the information is presented as empirical data on suicidal homicidal deaths dealing with firearms. While the information is obviously supported by the AG's office and the Mass Med Society along with 
two state law enforcement organizations, there seems to be no support by any gun rights or gun safety organizations and no basic gun safety tips or standards. The other pamphlet targeted a hypothetical patient entitled Gun Safety and Your Health. Details almost exclusively ways in which way you may rid yourself of the firearm or ways to make it significantly less accessible. And again, no gun safety rules or standards normally addressed by gun owners. The gun rights organization Goal or Gun Owners Action League of Massachusetts has pointed out that not only do these pamphlets not have the backing of gun safety informed groups, it also helps conflate gun deaths with suicide, both of which need to be addressed differently. Pink Pistols in Orlando. In the wake of the mass shooting at the Orlando nightclub, more unsuspecting individuals are turning towards firearms for self-defense. We saw that gun sales continue to rise even after the election results of Donald Trump, partially due to the amount of people on the left side of the aisle purchasing firearms potentially from a fear of this new administration. The pro-gun LGBT organization Pink Pistols thinks everyone should have a right to defend themselves and is targeted specifically at the LGBT demographic in gun safety advocacy. The chapter was started by NRA instructor Joe Martin, who is not part of the LGBT demographic, but was asked multiple times about starting a Pink Pistols chapter. Some students of the free classes had this to say. It affected me in a way to where I felt like I, you can't ever go anywhere and be safe. As events keep happening and you see stuff on the news, I'm inching closer and closer to actually owning a gun, yes. It's terrible that it takes a horrific attack like the one in Orlando to get people to understand how vulnerable you can be and how important it is to fight back. But hopefully some good can come out of something so deeply disturbing. An ex-boyfriend's Valentine surprise. Now, just days before Valentine's Day, one ex-boyfriend who couldn't let his woman go decided to break into her apartment. As 27-year-old Eugene Liddell was breaking into the apartment of his ex for whatever reason, he definitely didn't get what he was expecting. Well, first at 531, man is in the hospital after being shot while breaking into his ex-girlfriend's house. That's according to police. Thankfully, the woman wasn't forced to have the impact of his death on her hands. He was taken to the hospital and is expected to recover. Now, the woman was, of course, taken in and questioned, but is not facing any pending charges. Unlike the attacker who will most likely be facing charges when he is released. And that is your Global Gun News Report for this week of February 2017. Here's you were thinking about. Okay. All right. So while the news is playing, we got into a heated debate about constitutional carry. I don't think we debated. I think we all pretty much agree. With well, okay. Yeah, okay, we, agree. Well, yeah, we agree that uh, there are some things that are just not, not right. Okay. So let me ask Justin, uh, Lone Star Gun Rights, Justin. So how's the bill going with... Um, How's that bill coming along uh, with uh, Jonathan Stickland? HB 375 is coming along great. Uh, it's just been uh, appointed to the Homeland Security Committee, and Representative Phil King is the chairman of the committee, and he has already uh, told us he's going to give us a hearing on the bill. 
Okay, so, so what do you need people to do? We need them to uh, to call uh, Mr. King. All right. Call his office. Uh, give me, if you give me one second, I'll uh, look up the number there. But also, uh, what else we were going to talk about? We we're going to talk about another bill that was uh, introduced. So there, so there's another bill that was introduced. It's a uh, is it House Bill? It's House Bill 1911. 1911. Okay, which is supposed to be a constitutional carry bill as well. It's not. Okay, and why do you say it's not a constitutional carry bill? I call it a privileged enough to carry bill. Okay, it's why do you say that? Well, give me one second, uh, Phil King. So that we need to call. So we need to contact Phil yes, King to make that. sure. Now that I have it up, I want to go ahead and, and, and get out uh, Phil King's information so people can go ahead and make that call. So we need Phil King. We need you to call Phil King's office to let him know that we need to bring. Uh, HB three seventy five and also some other good bills that are out there. We need to bring them up. They need to have Here, a hearing. Here's another thing: the bill author of three seventy five says that if we get it to the floor and, and we get we get the bill to where we can get it to a vote, Jonathan said he is fine amending his bill to include a lot of this stuff. And and, and he said Phil King is the he's the chair of what committee? The Homeland Security Committee. Okay, and there there are a lot of good bills. There's the EMS bill, yes. the first responders. That means that first responders will be able to carry while they're working. I think that's a great bill. Um, there's there are a lot of good bills that are out there. Uh, what if you're you decide one day well, you're, you're you on your Mike, way home? Out, out of all the bills that there are right now, which one is going to have the most impact? Uh, I think all of them. Be honest with you. There's one bill that's going help. to affect more people than the other. I think they all do. I think three seventy five. Three seventy five is going to allow way. I'm going to say all of them. I'm going to say all of them. Three seventy five at the end of the day is going to allow way more people to carry than it does currently. Three seventy five is not going to help me if I decide to have a couple of drinks and I want to put my my gun somewhere. No, but again, I already told you the bill author of that has already told me that if his bill makes it to the floor, you can add that as an amendment. We'll start adding amendments, okay. and then we'll start getting votes on these things, because a lot of these bills are not going to come out of committee, and you know that. Okay. So the way we're going to do this is, if we can get this 375 to the floor, we'll go ahead and we'll start adding these amendments, and we'll start seeing where people stand on, on a lot of these issues. Okay. All right. So. All right. So Phil King's number? Uh, call his office. It's 512-463-0738. And go ahead and, and, and check out Lone Star Gun Rights, our Facebook page, because we want you to go ahead and keep calling this every single day. Until we tell you exactly what's going on with the bill. Until until he guarantees or, or schedules a hearing, go ahead and call his number every single day. And what's his phone number again? 512-463-0738. Okay, we'll put that, we'll put that on Facebook. Let me get you to tell that to me one more time. <laughs> We're going to put that on Facebook. Hold on. No worries. I'm almost there. <laughs> okay, and what is it again? 512-463-0738. And that's Representative Phil King, and he has already told us he will give us a hearing, and that he has already been getting flooded with calls for 375. Even before it was in committee, he was getting calls for it, because we already knew he was he was going to be the committee chair. Okay. All right. So we got that online. At pro-gun bills, uh, so they can have a hearing. Yes. Or just a vote. Honestly. Okay. Now, there's another so-called constitutional carry bill. That's uh, House Bill 1911 that's been followed by who? Yeah, that's not constitutional carry. That's uh, we're gonna go ahead and let's just not not claim that it is. It's uh, it's privileged enough to carry is what this is called, and this is uh, this is being carried by Representative James White, who is also signed on to HB three seventy five. But I find it kind of odd that HB three seventy five has been submitted since November, and all of a sudden, literally less than a week ago, they decided to to bring this bill out and submit this bill. Okay, what are the difference between HB three seventy five and HB nineteen eleven? Well, in simple terms, 375, if you're legally allowed to possess the firearm, you're legally allowed to carry the firearm within the state. 
Okay. So if you're not pro- prohibited from owning a firearm, you can carry it. All right. Openly or concealed within the state. And that's HB 375. HB 375. Right, so HB 1911? HB 1911, what it would do is it would, it uh, they're not calling it legally, legally allowed to possess. They're calling it legally authorized in the bill language. And when you go to look at what, what legally authorized means, there's 13 requirements that you have to meet in order to, in order to be eligible to carry. What are those 13? Well... I want to start from the top. I need, okay. Yes, please tell me what are the 13 from the top. Oh, great. This is going to be a lot. That's okay. Give it to me. Um, let me see. So we have, is a legal resident of the state? Well, so a lot of these are already things. So, for example, is a legal reg- resident of the state? Okay. Um, for at least at, six months, correct? Yeah, six-month period. So, you have, so anybody who's moving here, you're not going to be able to carry until, until you've been here for six months. At least the age of 21. How do you determine that? You, you tell me. When you pulled over by police, how do you determine if you've been here for yeah. You tell me. Years? Okay, go ahead. Uh, at least the age of 21, has not been convicted of a felony, is not charged with the commission of a, uh, see now this is one of the interesting ones, uh, class A or class, this is charged with a class A or class B misdemeanor. Okay, hold on. You said charged. Not charged. convicted. So if you're charged with a class A or class B misdemeanor, just charge, you lose your gun rights. And I think that kind of loses context. So like Justin. What so what, what, what are class, class B's and class A's? Well, I can tell you that Class Bs are not very hard to commit. It's right. actually just a it, it, just getting charged with disorderly conduct, which could be uh, abusive, indecent, profane, or vulgar language that is insightful. Uh, offensive gestures. So if you give somebody the finger and you're you're in the right. vicinity of a police officer so or something flip, like that, you flip someone off. Like yeah, the producer all of a sudden just, now just you, did me just now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, now you, you deserved it. He's like, no, I didn't. No. Nah. But now, uh, basically, if you get charged with that, you, you'd lose your rights for five years. Okay. Five years. Five oh. years. So under ni- House Bill 1911, if you get charged with one of these things, just charge. Yes. You lose your gun rights for five years. No. You will you will get your your rights back as soon as you go to court and you've been proven not guilty, which could but, take a while, which could take years. Right. I know that from personal experience. You Correct. remember when I got arrested at the Capitol Correct. for 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 carrying a black powder revolver? I lost my rights during those per- that period, wow. and that took you know that took a little over a year. Okay. So, but yeah, if you're if you're convicted, it'll be five years, and if you're charged, it's going to take the entire time from from when you were charged to to when you're proven to be disposed innocent. Disposed of. Yes. Wow. Okay. Wow, that's crazy. So, uh, let's see. What else we got on here? Uh, well, there's still the is not a chemically dependent person, What, which leads back into, you know, later on, if this were to be passed, later on, say we get medicinal marijuana here and say we mm-hmm. get those kind of things. I mean, over in Alaska, they have the same problem where people who, and we have it here on the bill that you fell out on the background check. It's people who supposedly are addicted to marijuana, which isn't a thing, um, are Again, they have their rights restricted just because of that plain thing right there. It's ridiculous. But um, well, even, right. even technically, if you look at the new forty four seventy threes, they're not uh, marijuana. People that smoke marijuana are not actually legal, legally allowed to possess firearms. All right, so hold right? that or thought. We're going to talk about that. We're going to finish talking about that. We're also going to go back to uh, Jada Cruz and talk to him about you know what's happening with um, in at Harvard, and also we're going to talk to him about uh, half cocked. This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talk It. Noir, and you're listening to Come and Talk It with Michael Cargo. 
Welcome back to Come and Talk It. And now, here's Michael Cargill. All right, so we're talking about um, Halfcock, the regulatory framework of short barrel firearms. Uh, but before we go back to um, Jada Cruz, before we get back to James, uh, uh, we're talking with Justin about this uh, House Bill 1911, what some people call a constitutional carry bill, which I, I actually, you know, as I'm reading this bill now, I have some problems with. You know, my biggest problem is going to be sales tax. So, so you're telling me that if a business owner files their sales tax late, they can lose their gun rights. Yes, one of the requirements right right here, number 10 on the requirement says, has not been finally determined to be delinquent. Well, this is the child support portion. That's another bad thing. But number 11, actually, has not been finally determined to be delinquent in the payment of a tax or other money collected by the comptroller, the tax collector of a political subdivision of the state or any agency or subdivision of the state. So I guess I don't think I don't think a lot of people are reading this and they don't realize that. So I don't who is the who's the person that's responsible for for this bill. Well, let me go ahead and read number 10 as well. Number 10 would disqualify you as well. Has not been finally determined to be delinquent in the making of a child support payment. Notice I said payment there, not payments. One payment. You could lose your gun rights. Administered or collected by the attorney general. Is this a pro-gun organization or anti-gun organization? What's going on here? <laughs> I, mean, what's, I don't like this. I don't you, like this. You tell me, Mike. Yeah, all I, all I like know this. is that HB 375 it has been submitted since November, and all of a sudden the Texas State Rifle Association wanted to come out with this bill. For whatever reason, I don't know. I don't know why why they couldn't just, just, just help us push HB 375. It started to sound like a little song, you know. Uh, if you, you know, if you owe back child support... You become delinquent by one day, you could lose your gun rights in Texas. Yeah, and here's my question too: Are the police officers now any anybody they see open carrying or anybody that's carrying are they gonna are they gonna detain you until they find out whether or not you're behind on child support or your taxes? And if we charge you with being disorderly con- with disorderly conduct, you can lose your gun rights. Absolutely. Wow. If you fail to pay your sales tax, you're delinquent. You're late one day, you could lose your gun rights. Yes. Is this who who is responsible for writing this bill? <laughs> this is a mess. I don't know who wrote the bill. I, I this is not a pro gun bill. It can't be. Huh. Can't be. Cannot be. Just can't be. We're not going to support it. Lone Star is Gun really, Rights is not going to support it. This is really it. badly written. It is. It is. All right, yeah, we definitely got to do something about this. This is this is badly written. That's that. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. It's it's a good bill number 1911. I love that. You know that that was done on purpose. Yeah, that's awesome. I I love that House Bill 1911 is a terrible bill. That is a terrible bill. Uh, if you're charged with a Class B or Class A misdemeanor, charge, charge, uh, you can lose your gun rights in Texas. And that, yeah, we, yeah, we definitely got to stop that immediately. That's a terrible bill. Anyone that's promoting this bill, you're losing your mind. All right, so let's go back to uh, Jada Cruz, James. All right, so we're, hi, how you doing? All right, sorry about that. So we're talking about half cocked. All right, so let's catch up a little bit. All right, so now we're uh, let's go to uh, the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, so the you know, uh, hold on. Okay, so the, the so the next step in this game is uh, we have to determine what test to use uh, for firearms rights. You know, okay. the First Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, the you know Fourth Amendment. They all have uh, they're all very protected uh, by the Supreme Court, uh, by other courts as well, and they're. Uh, no one really, you know, questions whether or not what level of scrutiny to apply or, or whatnot. Uh, the Second Amendment's been very different on that regard. Uh, you know, you have uh, Judge Easterbrook out of uh, out of the Ninth Circuit uh, that says that firearm rights should get 
basically rational basis scrutiny, uh, which basically means if there's any logical reason for Congress to pass this bill, then it is constitutional. Uh, so that's how you get assault weapons bans being upheld. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, you have other courts like the District Court of the Marianas Islands, uh, which says that uh, we have to apply you know, strict scrutiny to some, which says that you have to have a substantial interest. Uh, the government has to have a substantial interest in a regulation, and then they have to apply that regulation in the most limited means possible uh, to not affect the core of the Second Amendment right. Uh, and in others, it just has to be a substantial interest. It's called intermediate scrutiny. Now, I, I won't bore you guys, anybody, with uh, you know the, the legal uh, tests of how you determine whether or not something deserves intermediate scrutiny or strict scrutiny. But in general, registration requirements are not able to be upheld uh, and this is what happened in, in uh, District of Columbia versus Heller. Uh, registration requirements are unconstitutional because they do not serve the purpose of preventing crime. All right, so let, let, me, let me ask you this. Uh, what are your thoughts about, because we were talking about this at breakfast this morning, because uh, you know, we have our, our, sh- our, our staff meeting for production the, meeting. our production meeting for the show at my favorite restaurant. We eat breakfast, you know, 8 o'clock. Uh, between eight and nine, I'm supposed to be there at eight o'clock. Supposed I usually get there at eight forty-five. <laughs> so, <laughs> when we have our meeting talking about what we're going to talk about in the show, um, we're talking about universal background checks. So, what are your thoughts on universal background checks? So, universal background checks, from you know my non-lawyer legal perspective, uh, would they would probably pass, unfortunately, a constitutional argument to some extent, because that background checks can prevent crime, whether or not they actually do in practice. And I'm not, a, you know, I'm not an advocate for universal background checks by any stretch of the imagination, uh, because I think it's going to be done sloppily. And uh, it's going to affect, you know, me, if I go shooting with you, Michael, then it's going to affect something like that. Or if I borrow a, a firearm from you, then I would have to get a background check, and that's ridiculous. Or, you know, if my father wants to give me a rifle or anything like that. Uh, so I don't support them. I think that they're, there's a better legal argument to make that they're, le- that they're constitutional than a registration requirement. And see, I'll tell you why I don't like it. I don't like it because, you know, and this is what we're talking about this morning. If someone, if you've been convicted of a, a, a crime, a felony, you've been convicted of uh, domestic violence, and you did this like 30 years ago, okay, so you went to jail, you paid the price for that. You've now been released from jail, okay? You lived an outstanding life for 30 years. You lived an outstanding life, and you haven't gotten in trouble, you know, since. You will never get your gun rights back. You know, what the state of Texas has said that after five years, um, after you've off probation and everything, uh, you can have a, a firearm at home for personal protection. But the federal government has said that you cannot purchase that, that firearm from a gun store or an FFL dealer because you cannot pass a background check. So, you know, why send people to jail and punish them if you're not going to give them all of their rights back when you return them back to the civilization? Exactly. And that's kind of, you know, that's a huge problem with our current gun laws is uh, we have this notion that if you've committed a felony and, in, you know, in some cases, you know, if it's a violent felony, like I, I get it. But in other cases, if 
you could live the rest of your life being a perfectly normal, outstanding citizen after paying your debt to society, and you've lost your right. And I believe it's the Firearm Owners Protection Act that does provide a way for you to get your rights back, but that part has been unfunded uh, since the bill's passage uh, in Congress. Mm, okay. And um, we, we have a, a question here. That someone sent me a question via um, Facebook, and it says, Michael, give me your view on these two experiences. I had, and this is a totally different topic here. Okay, He said, I had this week at Cabela's and then later at a Saxon gun show. Both places asked that I remove my magazine and they zip tie the slide before allowing me entrance. I don't get it. They make millions off of guns. They champion Second Amendment rights and then that. So, Justin, what are your thoughts about that? So going to a gun show, you go to Cabela's, um, you go to, you know, you're not allowed to, you know, have a, a loaded. They actually post third out six signs and third out seven signs at the gun show. So at the gun show, they do. But oftentimes it has to do with the the the, play, the people that are going there and selling their products. Mm-hmm. The vendors mm-hmm. don't challenge the the landlord and, and because it's typically they're, they're held in public areas. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, let's talk about the Cedar Park Center by where I live, where they have gun shows there. The Cedar Park Center itself is a 30-06 and 30-07 uh, place, but they, they legally they should not be because it's a public entity, and, and they're claiming it's because of the TABC licenses, which only really apply to the stores that are inside, but they try to make it apply to the entire building. Until people challenge that, they're able to do it. Yeah, because that, that's only for the individual yes. little shops or whatever that are selling it just, alcohol. You've seen it just like I have, though. Right. They, try to, they try to make it to a point. So no one's filed a complaint against the, the Cedar the Park thing. Center. You know, the, these places that are going here and, and they're, they're paying all this money to sell their products, they're the ones that really need to start complaining about it. So that's that sounds like someone should file it. That's, because that's owned by the city, is that correct? Yes. Okay, so someone should file a complaint with the Texas Attorney General's office next time you go to Cedar Park Center. And file a complaint. Take pictures of those, or wherever it is. And even even if it's not a even if it's a private place, you know, again, it goes back to the vendors. The vendors are the ones that need to complain because, okay. for instance, you let people carry in your gun shop, right? Right. They come Absolutely. In, you know what I'm saying? You, before before they walk to the door, you zip tie their guns. Yeah, no, the only time we don't <laughs> allow you to carry is if you're coming for a class. We don't want you know we don't, we don't want you to have the handgun in the classroom. But if you you come to the store, you come shopping or whatever you whatever you're doing, yeah, you can carry your gun openly or concealed. Yep. Yeah, we don't stop you doing that at all. Okay. All right, so James, let me go back to you. So, all right, so back to the universal background checks. Sorry, we just had to get to that question real quick. All right, so back to the universal background checks. Um, yeah, so, you know, that's my thing with that. And and you were saying something, Aaron, this morning. You had a couple of questions about that because you're saying, well, for certain crimes, a person should, you know, you, you, you were asking me, do I think a person should lose their gun rights forever for certain crimes? Right. And, I, and I said that I don't feel comfortable answering that question because, number one, I don't trust the legal system. Right. I don't trust the system, you know, that entire system there that says, hey, you know, we're going to convict you off of this evidence right here. And because of that, you're going to lose your gun rights forever. Sure. You know, I, don't, I, I think that if you're going to if someone's going to go to jail, they're going to pay the price for that. Then you're going to release them from jail back into civilization. Then they should get all of their rights back. Right, and that would well. I mean, that's also operating on the assumption that the penal system, or rather, that when people go to jail and they're released, that they're reformed, or that the you know the entire. Because what's the purpose of sentencing someone to jail if right. you're not going to give them the rights back? Right. Right. No, I agree. Uh, I think having a certain time frame is reasonable. And that 
can uh, help with if, if there's a long history of crime. You know, kind of like if you have bad credit and you file bankruptcy, they ask you, have you filed bankruptcy within seven years? And then your credit's still bad. Okay. But if you haven't, then your credit goes back up. So I, there should be maybe a time frame. Um, maybe within five years or two years, whatever it might be, that you haven't committed a crime, I think you should get your gun rights back. It shouldn't, because people do make mistakes. What if you did something at 18 and then for 10, 15 years you didn't do anything wrong? Yeah, we have a perfect example of that. Not too long ago, there's an article that, or a story that we um, that we also repeated. But uh, in Arizona, there's a state trooper who was saved by a guy who was. This is a little bit a little bit off, but he was charged with a felony but he was able to go back and get it ex- basically I think he got it expunged it from his expunged. record so he wasn't really awkward kind of area but I mean with just a few changes in that story he could have been a felon mm-hmm. he could have lost his rights yeah. and I mean yeah that's yeah okay all right so um so James um, any any thoughts about that at all yeah I mean so the whole purpose of our judicial system is if you've committed a crime, you pay your debt to society, you go to prison or you go to jail, and, or you pay a fine, and then once that debt is complete, you go back to your life. And you, we eventually, you know, there are processes to get your voting rights back and uh, other, you know, other rights that you may lose. Uh, but mainly you go back to your life and you try to move on and you try to be a good citizen. Uh, that part of being a good citizen has always been the ability to defend yourself and the ability to defend others. So it doesn't make any sense to me uh, that we would continue to penalize those people uh, after they've served their debt to society. All right, we're talking with James DeCruz. He's a Harvard Law student, and we're talking about Half Cock, a paper he wrote um, about the ATF regulations. This is Michael Cargill, and you are listening to Come and Talk It. Yo, what's going on, guys? It's Jack Jones here, and I get my gun news from Michael Cargill on Come and Talk It. Welcome back to Come and Talk It, and now here's Michael Cargill. (laughs) All right, Pit Squirrel attacks home intruder, breaking into gun safe. Oh, no. Got to stop him. Time to get a pet squirrel. <laughs> all right, all right. So uh, I get knocked down. I get back up again. That's right. And that's that's all about James DeCruz. You know, you get knocked down. You get back up again. You know what? You go to Harvard Law School. You graduate. You become the best attorney where you can fight all these anti-gun organizations and you put them in their place. <laughs> Absolutely, that's the plan. All right, so James, kind of sum up for me um, your paper. Um, kind of sum that up for me and 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 what what point are you trying to drive home? Yeah, so the, the main thing that, uh, you know, there, there are really two provisions that the, the ATF has created in regulations uh, that are a problem. And the first one, of course, is uh, being, not being able to attach a vertical forward grip on your pistol without turning it into an, what's called an any other weapon. And uh, however, the ATF does maintain that you can attach an angled grip on your pistol and it not change the classification of the pistol into an any other weapon. So, I mean, there's just a huge penalty for people who, you know, attach this something that costs only a few dollars to their pistol that the ATF maintains changes the very nature of the firearm. 
the other thing is the Sig Sauer arm brace, which the ATF, the leaked ATF white paper uh, just took my position on this. Uh, they had originally issued a letter saying that if you shoulder the Sig Sauer arm brace uh, that's attached to your pistol, if you shoulder it, there's no penalty. They reversed that uh, just a few months later, and they said that uh, if you shoulder this Sig Sauer arm brace, and this was a huge controversy in the firearms community, uh, so if you shoulder it, suddenly you've created a short-barreled rifle. And yeah, cause my we actually, points out. Yeah, because we actually had the people that actually, you know, um, actually wrote, <laughs> actually invented that. We had them on the radio, on the radio show here. And they're talking about basically, you know, people were poking the bear. You know, they're asking questions, asking questions about it. Too many. Yeah. And so the ATF had to come down and, and give another ruling, you know, to reverse that because they were just poking the bear. And there was YouTube videos about it. There was there was just so much stuff going on and so many people asking and so many people that were confused that I think it just I think we were kind of uh, our own worst enemy in this particular instance. Yeah, absolutely. But go ahead. Yeah, please. I agree. Um, so, I mean, but the you know the problem is, is that's not how you know, regulations work. You can't, uh, especially when there's criminal penalties involved, uh, the ATF has to follow a certain procedure uh, set forth by Congress. And since the ATF does not regulate behavior, it regulates firearms, it regulates uh, mechanical and, in some cases, aesthetic features of firearms. And so you take this pistol, you attach the Sig Sauer arm brace, and you put it on the floor. It's a pistol according to the ATF. You put it on your arm, you attach it properly uh, on your arm, and still a pistol. I can put it up against my cheekbone, it's still a pistol. But somehow, when I put it on that magical area on my shoulder, it becomes a short-barreled rifle. And so that's, you know, that's regulating behavior, which was not what Congress intended when they created the National Firearms Act, uh, and, or, I mean, or the Gun Control Act, and so on and so forth. Uh, so it's interesting that the ATF director uh, has suddenly decided that in the sleep uh, white paper that my version is correct uh, and that following the current ATF practice of making this an illegal act, uh, it, it undermines the ATF's authority to regulate other, other firearm attachments and other firearms. Uh, because it just shows that the ATF is out of touch and that the you know policymakers are out of touch and there's no way of policing this. How is a police officer going to know that I whether I shot the six hour arm brace from my cheekbone or from my shoulder without physically being there in that exact moment? Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong. I think you're supposed to have what one sixty fourth of an inch between between the brace and your shoulder. Yeah, it's it's something ridiculous <laughs> like that. That's absolutely. I mean, I, I don't. I'm being facetious, I obviously. I have no idea. I just think yeah. it's funny. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, and uh, yeah, it's just a, a ridiculous standard and a ridiculous law that cannot be reasonably enforced. And the, you know, the ATF has tried to enforce some rules like this, like with vertical foregrip, and two out of three of them have been thrown out. Uh, and, you know, so we had just have some regulations that the ATF is able to bully the firearms community. Uh, into believing that they're going to violate the law. And right, as, as it's written, it would violate the law. Uh, but, you know, the courts, at least for the most part, have seen, said that the ATF is overstepping its bounds. And uh, although they haven't struck down these regulations full sale, uh, they should. And that's the point of my paper is uh, telling courts that this does not jive with an actual understanding of firearms or firearms law. And I tell you, you know, people really need to pay attention to you, you know, because the things that you bring up 
eventually down the road, they actually change because you bring them up. You know, these issues. And, and, and that's why I actually follow you. And that's what people don't understand. They, they got to get paid attention to you. And they actually need to read your paper. And I'm going to read all of it. I haven't, read, uh, written, I haven't read it all just yet, but I'm definitely going to read it all. Half-cock, the regulatory framework of short barrel firearms. And this is going to be published, correct? Yes, it'll be published, I believe, next month is the publishing date. Okay, good. Yeah, because I'm definitely going to read it all because um, it's definitely something that needs to be, you know, you know, looked at. And we need to, you know, contact your U.S. congressman, your U.S. senator, and let them know, hey, we need to get like things like um, the suppressor off the list. Uh, we need to uh, pass the bill that's going to have you know, uh, um, concealed handgun license holders can carry in all the different states. Uh, so we need to get these things done because this is just one little step that we can um, make happen to get some of your rights back. You know, you should be able to travel around different states, you know, with your your handgun, you know, with, with a license. You really shouldn't need one at all. But soon you should enough, be able we to. won't, Mike, because two more states have already uh, passed constitutional carrier waiting on governor signatures, New Hampshire and I forget the other state. Exactly. I don't have it written down, but two more states in the last couple of weeks have passed a. Uh, Passed the Senate and the House. So all they're waiting for is governor signatures. So we're going to be up to what? That's 13, 14 states now mm-hmm. with constitutional carry. So it's coming. All right. So definitely, you know, pay attention to what's going on at your your local legislator. Pay attention to what's going on at the at your U.S. Congress uh, in, in D.C. Because these things have got to change. And thanks to James Cruz, James DeCruz, uh, who's brought this stuff to light. And he's laying this all out for us. So definitely take a, you know, take a few minutes and read this. Um, it, it's, it's about, I think it's, what, 40 pages long? It's, yeah, it's 40 pages. It's a little so, bit long, but it's, uh, it was necessary. Definitely. And so thank you, James. I really appreciate you coming on the show today and lining this out for us. Uh, continue to listen to us in Harvard uh, University there. Uh, we're going to tune in and we're going to watch you as you walk, walk across that stage. And we hope to see you back here in Texas uh, at one of our law firms. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. All right. Thank you, sir. Craig Kassar, District 4 Austin City Council member, released a statement on his official and personal Facebook account last week in response to the recent confirmation of ICE operations in Austin, Texas. Now, in the, in the post, he states he believes ICE is here to publicly arrest people in order to retaliate for the community supposedly standing up to people like Governor Abbott or, and President Trump. Now, and the actions of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement is, quote, and this is what it says, beyond reprehensible. Well, all of this speculation occurred in spite of the fact that it was revealed by lawyers working for ICE that the agency is only looking for immigrants who either have outstanding deportation orders or warrants for arrest. And approximately 75 percent were criminal aliens convicted of crimes, including but not limited to homicide, aggravated sexual assault, sexual assault of a minor lewd and levicious acts with a child, indecent liberties with a minor, drug trafficking, battery, assault, DUI, and weapons charges. Now, recently, Councilmember Kassar congratulated Sally Hernandez, the sheriff of Travis County, for instituting a policy in response to the recent immigration changes. The sheriff's office now refuses to work with ICE on issues of inmates here illegally, but not reporting incidents 
where undocumented individuals are under arrest unless the offense committed is murder, sexual assault, or human trafficking. Now, when the new policy went into effect, there were 191 immigrant inmates being detained by ICE request on February the 1st. And out of those inmates, only 30 fall under one of the three categories stipulated by the sheriff. So in December of last year, our city council voted to subsidize legal fees for local immigrants, which would effectively lead to the city spending people's tax dollars on the personal fees of illegal immigrants. In a disturbing but not all that surprising reaction to the ICE operations in Austin, protesters turned rioters took to the intersection of Runberg and Lamar in Kassar's district and were recorded attacking an individual, throwing objects at him and chasing down his car with sticks as they attacked his vehicle. After police arrived, they continued to obstruct traffic, verbally threatening officers with violence and jumped on top of police cars. So in light of these and other violent actions taken by many in opposition to both conservative and even some random individuals, remember the castle doctrine and remember more guns equals less crime. Go out and buy yourself a gun. You've been listening to Come and Talk It with Michael Cargill. I'll take my Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 